Thank you. Where are the moms? Moms, please stand up. Thank you. There isn't a mom in this room who is not to some degree underappreciated. There isn't a mom in this room who has heard thank you enough. There isn't a mom in this room who has been remembered enough, loved enough, cared for enough. But every mom in this room, especially those who have significantly sacrificed for their children, are worthy of honor. So moms, we thank you. If your mom is not here and you're able to, call her and thank her. If you're able to physically hug her, I'm grateful that I'll be going to hang out with my mom today, just me and her. And while Mother's Day is a day that we tell our moms how much we appreciate them, and this isn't a day, this isn't one of those days where it's not about what struggles you have with your mom. All of us can have different struggles. That's not important today. What's important today is that the Lord gave you a mom. She wasn't perfect. She made mistakes. She has regrets. But many of them were there at times when you needed them. And even if you're aware of when there were times they weren't there, there were times that they were there. And so today, today, celebrate that. Remember that and thank your mom, if you can, for that. And moms, for those of you who are believers in Jesus, know that one day when you stand before him, there will be rewards given to you for your faithfulness in that role as mom. The difficulties of raising children, praying for children, caring for them, nurturing them, hoping that they grow into be, especially if they're Christians, hopefully they grow into be believers. The disappointment sometimes you have, you never stop being a mom no matter how old your kids are. My mom sometimes will talk to me like I'm nine. I'm like, Mom, I'm grown. I got a family of my own. I don't care. I'm your mother. It's like, that never changes. I love when Mary told Jesus, hey, turn the water into wine. And he was like, woman, this isn't, this isn't my time. She didn't care nothing about what he said. She went to the, hey, said, whatever he does, whatever he says, do, do it. She knew he was going to listen to his mother. And that's his first miracle. He wasn't even ready to do a miracle. He said, it's not my time. She said, boy, go over there and turn that, we'll do something. Like that. That's a mom for you. That's a mom for you. They're not perfect. They're not perfect. And they don't profess to be. The only person who was perfect is Jesus. But we can thank them for their faithfulness in their imperfections. Amen? Amen. Father, we just thank you today, even though our, our, I'm glad that our nation recognizes moms. And I know for some today, that's a challenging day for different reasons. But today, Lord, we're not focusing on the challenges that may exist between people and their moms. We're focusing on the gratitude 
that we had moms, that there was someone there with all her imperfections to care for us. Thank you that you created that particular dynamic of moms, that you chose them specifically to bring children into the world physically, and then in many ways, in many ways, to bear the primary responsibility for raising those kids after they come into the world. Thank you, Lord, for the moms who are struggling maybe today for various reasons, maybe regret from things of the past or, or decisions that were made today. Just whatever it is, Lord, I pray that today, that they would just feel appreciated and that they would look to the day when you will reward them for their faithfulness as a mom. So, Lord, today is a, is, is, a, is a fraction, the smallest fraction of gratitude for moms. But for this moment, may it carry them until they stand before you and receive a reward much greater than any of us can give in this life. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Having said that, today is not a Mother's Day sermon, so if anybody was hoping for that, that's just not going to happen today. We are going to continue in our, our series of the supernatural storyline of the Bible, and this is the last theme that traces throughout the Bible that comes out of Babel. The Tower of Babel was the last of three major rebellions in the Bible, the Garden of Eden, what caused the flood in Genesis 6 through 9, and then the Tower of Babel. And we looked at the, some of the themes that have come out of that. Today will be the last. We've seen the land and the importance of land. And last week, we looked at the gods, God against the gods, the importance of why God is fighting against other gods. Today, we look at the people, the people. Spiritual warfare, as we know it, consists of three things, a land, a God, and a people. So today, we're going to focus on people. Now, there are two primary questions we're going to ask and answer today. The first question is this. Why did God choose a small group of people and then move them right into enemy territory. Why did he do that? And the second question will be, why should we care? Again, the theme of people will not be new to many of you, but I trust that what is shared today may be helpful. And as always, remember, God is intentional. God is intentional. Every detail matters, some more than others, but every detail is intentional. Having said that, let's jump in. In Deuteronomy 8, chapter 8, beginning in verse 7, we're going to read 7 through 10. Here's what God says to Israel. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
it was not because you were more in number than any other people that, are, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house. Now, this is a great passage to explain why Israel is God's people, made a promise to Abraham and so forth. And he makes it clear that I didn't choose you because you're a great people. In fact, you're the most insignificant people group that exists. I didn't choose you because of that. You're not holy to me because of that. That's not why I chose you. This is a great passage to explain why Israel is God's people, but why did he move them into enemy territory? And why should we care? Why didn't God, who knew that the gods of the surrounding nations would be a significant temptation, that Israel would disobey God and worship those gods and the other nations? Why didn't God say, I'm going to bring you up out of Egypt and move you to a land where nobody is because you all aren't mature enough to not worship the gods that they worship, and you can be undistracted right over here and worship me? God could have done that. But why did he say, nope, I'm going to take you and put you right in the most center of concentrated evil? Why did he do that? He could have easily brought them to uninhabited land. Now we get, okay, why Israel is the people of God. But why put them in imminent danger? in the middle of all evil. And why should we care about that? Well, two weeks ago, in the sermon about the importance of land, I mentioned that even though God had given them a land, he commanded them to take possession of it. And we see this in Deuteronomy 1, verse 8. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them, to give to them and to their offspring after them. We see this also in Deuteronomy 1, chapter, verse 21. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. This idea of taking possession of the land. So it's not like the Lord just said, I'm giving you a land, like he did Adam and Eve. He created, giving you a land. He says, no, you're going to go in and take possession of it. Take possession means you got to fight against the people who live there. You got to get them out of there. So you can have this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, all the stuff that you want. But here's the caveat. You got to go in and fight them. And here's the other caveat. They're bigger, stronger, and more than you. And here's the other caveat. There's no other way this is going to happen. It's your land, but you've got to take possession of it. Why does he do that? Now, to take possession of the land, many of you may know this, but what that meant was God had given each tribe of Israel all of them except the Levites, a particular part of the land. They were to go in, take possession of the land, and then each tribe 
was to get different portions of this land. In Joshua 18, 1 through 7, we see this. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among them people of Israel, seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. And Judah shall continue in his territory on the south. And the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory in the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for you before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And God, Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh, have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So not only were the Israelites to take possession of the land, but they are to divide it up among the various tribes, and it became an inheritance for them. The land became an inheritance, but they must possess it. Why? Well, the ante continues to raise in this idea that they must possess it. In Deuteronomy 2, 24 and 25, God says this. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of Arnon. Behold, I have given it into your hand, Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So here God is promising to put the dread of people on them so that Israelites can take possession of the land. So what is happening here? Why is God making them fight to take the land? Well, to answer this question, there are two things that we have to remember. The first is what Satan said to Jesus in the wilderness. Here's what Satan said when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Here's what he says to Jesus. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. Now I touched on this last week, but it's necessary to return back to this passage to answer why God is moving Israel into enemy territory. Satan told Jesus that the kingdoms of the world have been delivered to him. They're his. 
And Jesus in John 12, the night before he's to be crucified, he publicly acknowledges that Satan is the ruler of this world. Now, keep in mind that Jesus is saying that knowing full well who he is and who the father is. But Jesus is still acknowledging that Satan is the ruler of this world. In the temptation in chapter in Luke, Jesus does not argue with Satan that he has been delivered the kingdoms of the world and can give them to anyone he wants to. He's the ruler of this world. But when did this happen? How did all of a sudden that happen? Well, we know this. We know that Satan invaded holy ground in the Garden of Eden. And he started a war which, which introduced the pattern for spiritual warfare, which is a people, a land, and a supernatural being, a God. We know that. Now, we don't know why Satan was given offspring but we know from Genesis 3 that Satan was given offspring seemingly immediately after Adam and Eve bit the fruit. In Genesis 3.15, here's what it says. God talking to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. This is the first time we hear anything about Satan having offspring, children. Where is this from? God just says, without, as if Satan knew this, as if this was a foregone conclusion, that you will have offspring that belong to you, and your offspring will be at odds with her offspring. His offspring is plural, many. Her offspring is singular, he. We know as far as we heard the last few weeks that God gave humanity over to cosmic powers of evil and particular portions of land which seem to fulfill what God said to Satan about having offspring in Genesis 3.15. Deuteronomy 4.19 we read this. This is what God is saying to the Israelites going into the land to take possession of it, the land of Canaan. He says this. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to, bow down to them and to serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So here God is saying, listen, when you go in to take possession of their land, they're going to be gods that they worship, but those gods are not your gods. I allotted, I gave those gods to all the other people. I am your God. So when you go take possession, don't worship their gods because I'm your God. So he's telling them to take possession of the land. So why bring this little people group in, the smallest in number, to take possession of the land? And why should we care at all? What's well, in the Bible, Pastor Kerr? That's why we care, sure. Anyone else 
in your study and your thinking and your meditation on the Bible and in Genesis, anyone else find it interesting that Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, but it never says that Satan was? Anyone else? It's fascinating to me. It never says that he was thrown out. It says that Adam and Eve were. Here's Genesis 3, 22 through 24. That's how it is. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve were taken out of the garden and a supernatural being, supernatural beings, cherubim are plural. A cherub would be one, cherubim would be more than one. So there are supernatural beings with a flaming sword stopping humanity from coming to eat from the tree of everlasting life. Now we know that that's quite possibly because had they eaten from the tree in a sinful state, then humanity would be eternally sinful before God. So it was a means of protection. But that was to protect humanity. It says nothing about Satan being able to move, come to and fro in the Garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve are kicked out of Eden, but Satan is given the whole world? Well, yes or no. The earth obviously still belongs to the Lord. Isaiah 66.1 is a flex verse. This is, a, this is a you or too small verse. God just says this, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? So keep that in mind that Satan the ruler of this world is the ruler of God's footstool. <laughs> Just keep that in mind. He's the ruler of God's footstool. God said, heaven is my throne and the earth is where I set my feet. Right? And he's the ruler of where God sets his feet. You are too small. Psalm 47, 6 through 9 says this, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The prince of the peoples gather to the people of God, the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God, he is highly exalted. It's clear that God is still king of this world, but for a particular reason, Satan is given authority over the world, and he is essentially the ruler of this world, says Jesus. So what happened here? Well, God gave Satan authority over the world, the people, and the land. And once God made that official after Babel, the world essentially 
became Satan's Garden of Eden. And now the people are his Adam and Eve, Volt. Humanity becomes that. The world now, and I don't know what happened before time, but somehow because Adam and Eve were deceived, Satan, God said, okay, you're going to have people that belong to you. And since you messed up Eden, you messed up what I was going to do in this world, the world now belongs to you. It's essentially his Garden of Eden. That's the first thing we have to remember. The second thing we have to remember is that there are always two wars happening at the same time, biblically speaking. Biblically speaking. In the most iconic spiritual warfare passage, Ephesians 6, which we'll get to in July. That's where we're ending up. Here's what Paul says, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now keep in mind, this is post-resurrection theology. This is after Jesus conquered the grave, rose from the dead. Paul is still calling where we live a present darkness. He says, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood because that's what we see. Our problem is people. Our problem is the people who, who offended us. Our problem is the politicians who we don't like. Our problem is the celebrities that we think do this. Our problem is people, but Paul is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. The real issue is not flesh and blood. There are spiritual forces at work. And then he says, this is who you're fighting against. There are two wars happening at the same time all of the time, biblically speaking. Now, the Israelites may not have known in detail what was happening. They may not have known all of that. To them, it was, we got to fight against these people. And remember in Numbers, when they went and saw the people, they were like, man, those folks are big. They got offended. Korah's rebellion, remember that two weeks ago? We're going back to Egypt. That's the land of milk and honey to us. They may not have understood what was going on, but they were the beginnings of living out Ephesians 6.12. They were the beginnings of wrestling not just with flesh and blood, but against these cosmic powers of evil that have authority in the world. And this is partly why God is bringing them into the heart of evil. Because when Israel's fighting against the nations, God is fighting against their gods. For God, there's no such thing as people fighting. It's as Israel fights, as God's people fights, he's fighting against their gods. So he tells them, and he makes it clear, it's not even just about go in and take the land from the people. 
He's saying go in and destroy all of the things that they worship, those other gods. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 12. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. So you see what God is saying? It's not just about dispossess these people. It's destroy everything that resembles the gods that they worship. There are two wars happening at the same time, all the time, biblically speaking. You and I are not just wrestling with temptations that we may have to sin. There is more than meets the eye, the Transformers. Now, I'm sure you guys know this, but God's strategy here is actually brilliant, right? So let me take this group of people and move them into the land. This is a brilliant strategy, right? Because God is essentially doing with Israel what he did with the rest of the world at Babel. All right, I'm going to divide you up, you people groups, and supernatural beings will oversee you, and you will, have different, you will be on different parts of the world. So he divides the land up by different people groups and gives them different gods to oversee them. Now he says, all right, I'm going to get this little people group and come into the land and every place that I put other gods and other people, I'm coming after. I'm coming for you. So I'm going to take this little group of people and bring them into the land that I gave all these other gods and all these other people to worship gods and I'm going to give it to them. I'm taking it back. And this people is so small, you should be able to defeat them. But you can't because you're not big enough. So now it's one people group dividing the land with the same God. So mind you, when God divided the land, people, and gods, he knew he was going to attack those gods on their land through their people. He knew this. And so he takes his little people group, tells them to take possession of the land, and all the other nations who are bigger and stronger can't do anything about it. In fact, the only thing that stops Israel from taking possession of the land is Israel. They're the only thing that stops them. Why bring this little group of people to take possession of the land? Because for God, it was spiritual warfare. It was God against the gods. There's a war that we don't see, 
Like in Daniel 10 last week, when the angel told Daniel, hey, we heard your prayers. I was sent to you three weeks ago, but I was held up by the prince of Persia. And so Michael, the prince, had to come free me. So Daniel's sitting there wondering, man, why is God, God isn't even answering me? And the whole time, there's a war going on that he has no idea about and would have never known about until the angel said, hey, I was being upheld. That's a serious scene because what it means is the powers of evil are powerful. They had at least the ability, for whatever reason, to stop his prayer from being answered. Do not think that the supernatural war that we don't see is only an Old Testament reality. And it could be some of the reason why you and I may not have received the things that we want because there may be a war going on to stop us from getting them. Why bring this little people group to take possession of the land? Because it was spiritual warfare. God against the gods. People taking possession. So why should we care at all? What does this have to do with us? We're not Israel. What does this have to do with us? Everything. Everything. Here's why we should care. Remember that seed of Eve from Genesis 3? Spoiler alert. His name was Jesus. And when he shows up, he picks 12 dudes, 14 if you count John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul. He grabs them, and though greatly outnumbered, like Israel in the Old Testament, he travels into enemy territory. And he goes all over. He goes where the Gentiles are, where the Jews are, and he has this small group of people greatly outnumbered by even the Jews and then definitely the Romans, this small group of people, just like Israel, is going in to enemy territory. And at the end of his life on earth, his earthly ministry, here's what he says to his disciples. This is a crazy scene in Matthew 28. Beginning in verse 16, here's what he says. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Matthew 28, 17 is the craziest verse in the Bible to me. Because these are disciples of Jesus who believed in him when he was alive know that he died, resurrected, have spent time with him, see him, and some doubt it. Let me tell you why this should encourage you, brothers and sisters. You need to learn how to be encouraged by passages like that. Not because you want to be glad about doubt, but you want to understand that <laughs> doubt is not only... Man, people doubted when they saw Jesus. It's going to make sense that people who know him and are trying to honor him who've never seen him will have some doubt. So don't let your doubt throw you out the window 
that's a part of the experience of the human life. The disciples saw him and doubted. He said to Thomas, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who do not see and believe. And unless anyone in here is a couple thousand years old, which if you are, I'd love to be your agent. We can make a lot of money, get his book of world's records and all of that. But I also have a lot of questions. You haven't seen Jesus. You weren't there. The disciples who were there, some of them doubted. Brothers and sisters, don't be so hard on yourself when you struggle with doubt. Don't rest in it, but don't let it pull the rug out from under your feet. Got to fight through it. They saw him and still doubted. It said they worshiped him and some doubted. <laughs> Lord, we uh, uh, honor you. I don't know, man. I don't know about this thing. Man. Lord, we worship you. Uh, you think it's really him? I don't know, man. What if it was? What are you talking about, fam? I mean, don't you think if you would have saw Jesus if he came, you'd be like, man, I'm, I'm believing forever. That's a good magic trick to die and rise from the dead and then do all these things and then be like, man, I don't know, man. I'm not sure, man. You I mean, you really think that that's? I just don't get it. But anyway. All right, so verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, we're very familiar with this passage, but we need to look at it in light of what spiritual warfare is and what we're hearing today. Now, Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples, but indirectly to all of us. As a result of the cross and the resurrection, all authority in heaven on earth have been given to Jesus. So when Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, he has that. He didn't do it Satan's way. Now, the language, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, we typically call that evangelism or we call it mission, but it's much, much more. In fact, it is the essence of spiritual warfare that God began by moving Israel into the land of Canaan. Let me prove this. He tells the Israelites, go and take possession of the land. We read multiple verses that say that. That language is similar to Go into all the world and make disciples. Now, Israel was to go into the land and take it from people, which was, supernaturally speaking, taking it from the cosmic powers of darkness. Now, I've said this a few times about take possession of the land. Do you know in the New Testament, that language, take possession, is the exact language that is said about demons who take possession of people. So we use the word demon-possessed, possession. You'll see this a lot in the Bible. The same language, take possession, is essentially, in the New Testament, what demons do when they take possession of people. We heard two weeks ago that people are land. Humanity was made from the ground. Genesis 2, God created Adam and Adam from the dirt, from the ground. 
We looked at Psalm 103.14. He remembers how we are formed, that we are only dust. Humanity is the ground, and we, when we are saved, the Holy Spirit resides in us, and we essentially become holy ground. Stay with me. In 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, here's what the Lord says to Timothy via Paul, or Paul via the Lord. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So all the people who are not Christians that you and I may struggle with because of their influence in the world or their particular uh, policies as they push through, all those people who are not Christians, your family members, your coworkers, all the people who are not Christians, God has said, they have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. So going back to Genesis 3, your offspring will be at odds with this offspring, her offspring. So Satan has authority over people, and people are land. It was spiritual warfare for Israel to go into the land and to take possession of it. It's spiritual warfare for us to go into the land and to take possession of it. Now, when I say spiritual warfare, I'm not being analogous. This is literally spiritual warfare. In fact, right smack in the middle of the most iconic Bible passage on spiritual warfare, Paul says this in Ephesians 6, 14 and 15. Here's what he said. This is the spiritual warfare go-to passage. Here's what he says. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the blessed prayer of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, it seems a little bit ambiguous. What does he mean? Shoes for your feet, readiness, gospel of peace. You know, shoes are for walking, going someplace, putting on the readiness, the gospel of peace, shoes, feet, ready, gospel. What is he getting at? Well, Romans 10, the same author who wrote Ephesians, he says this in the beginning of verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So in Ephesians 6, Paul lists spiritual warfare as actually telling people about Jesus. 
It's not an optional thing for the Christian who's an extrovert. It's not living vicariously through Mike and metamorphosis. It is literally spiritual warfare. So let's do this. Let's take almost everything we've heard in this series and put it all together. Satan goes into holy ground, into Eden, tempts the people, Adam and Eve, to sin by biting from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He started spiritual warfare. Or as Sylvester Stallone once said, he drew first blood. If you know, you know. God tells him at some point a male human being is going to come and destroy his authority in the world. God gives him offspring, authority over humanity, and then over the actual world itself, dividing humanity into portions with cosmic beings overseeing them throughout the world. God then establishes a new people, starting with a man named Abram, who becomes Abraham. And though insignificant in size and strength, he brings them into a land where the concentration of evil is the strongest. He tells them to take possession of the land, and by doing so, they are fighting against the gods of those lands as well as the people. Israel fails to do that sufficiently, so God tries again, this time coming in the flesh and taking another small group of insignificant people, giving them authority over the world, casting out demons, healing people, teaching people how to obey God. And then he takes the punishment on the cross for the sins of those people, rises from the dead, then gathers another small group of insignificant people and says, now you go into all the world and make disciples because authority has now been given to me. And so as we get saved, like Israel, though small in number, we ought to finish what they started. Except now, now we are the serpents to Satan. Now we are infiltrating his Garden of Eden. Now we're the evil ones to him, infiltrating his garden of evil and telling people about the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil based on Jesus Christ. Now we're the serpents in his garden, tempting people to bite from the tree of the fruit of everlasting life. We're the ones now offering the fruit. We're the Satan. We're the serpents telling them to disobey their God him. Even the language of obedience is connected to fruit. In Galatians 5, 19, beginning in verse 19 through 24, this is what it says. Now the works of the flesh are evident. 
Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice that it says the works of the Spirit are these things, but the fruit of the Spirit are these things. This is a new knowledge of good and evil. And we are the Satan to Satan in his Garden of Eden, tempting people to sin against their God by believing in Jesus. This is a new fruit. And since people are the land, each time we do that, like Israel, we are taking possession of the land. We are dispossessing Satan and demons who have taken possession of these people, and we take possession of the land, and then the Spirit comes to them, and now those people are holy ground. Just like the land was Israel's inheritance in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, when people who are the land get saved, they become co-heirs with Christ. And the language of inheritance still exists for those of us. Galatians 3, 27 through 29, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have hope, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Nothing's changed. Israel, take possession of the land as your inheritance and dispossess the gods who were in those lands. Church, Go into all the world and make disciples, taking possession of the land. They are an inheritance. They are co-heirs when they believe and dispossess the gods who were there. So people cast out demons. You see many things happening. Israel fought against the gods with physical weapons. We fight against them with spiritual weapons. Israel took people, we take thoughts captive and submit them to Jesus Christ. We are finishing 
what God started with Israel, bringing them into the land to take possession of it and to worship him as their God. Except we are not told to go into a specific location because the land are the people that we take possession of. And wherever people are, there's land. This is the underlying supernatural storyline that involves us. And this is probably the one that we most don't like. We're no different in terms of the spiritual warfare pattern that God set out beginning with Israel. But here's where we have to be careful. Like Israel in the Old Testament, we have to fight against worshiping other gods in our land. We have to fight against worshiping other gods in our land. In the Old Testament, God said, don't hang around these people because you'll worship their gods. We have to be careful when we hang around these people because we try, we end up being like them. How many people do you know that profess to be with Jesus, whether they got in a romantic relationship and wanted to have evangelistic dating or whatever it was, and then all of a sudden those people are no longer with the Lord? We have to, like Israel in the Old Testament, protect the land from us worshiping other gods. We have to be careful that we're not influenced by people and the gods that they serve in their lands, or we may be astray, let astray, and walk away from the faith. But you know what else like Israel we can't do? We can't look at the land, see how big the people are, and be afraid. And I think I've been this way. I think many people in this room look at the land, see how big the people are, and are afraid. So we resort to, well, I'm not good at that. I'm not, I don't know what to say. I don't. So like Israel, taking possessions of the land becomes optional. I may have always thought this in some way, shape, or form, but I'm convinced and will die believing that making disciples is not an option and it's not reserved to particular ministries and people who are gifted. It is spiritual warfare. You know, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, indeed, all who desire to be godly, to live a godly life, will be persecuted. All who desire to live, you know why many of us struggle with being godly? Because there's no persecution in our lives. You know why? Because when there's no persecution, you don't even have confidence that you can persevere through things. We're more worried about suffering and being, I was talking to somebody last week who does evangelism and I said, hey, do you experience any physical attack for believing in Jesus when you share the gospel? And they were like, no, not really. And I said, so in your estimation, why don't you think people like to share the gospel? Just out of curiosity. And they were like, well, I don't know. I just think people don't want to be like offend people and all of that. Like, so I said, in other words, people don't want to be social pariahs, right? We don't want to be, we don't want to offend anybody. As if being offensive 
because you're trying to share the truth is the worst thing ever. We're looking at the land that God says go take possession of, and they're just a little big to us. We're afraid. So the people, the Caleb's of our, and the Joshua's of our midst, we cheer them on. Go get it. But the rest of us are just watching, waiting for them to bring back some fruit. God is telling everyone to go take possession of the land. Now, I'm grateful for people who feel like they're missionaries to go overseas. Cool. I know a lot of missionaries, though, who never shared the gospel in their neighborhoods. I, was, I told some people, hey, listen, fam, it's not going to be easier overseas. This is the spiritual warfare we don't like. Because this spiritual warfare makes us the most uncomfortable. And this spiritual warfare is the one that's the most optional for us. It's the most optional. But biblically speaking, spiritual warfare is essentially twofold for our part, our part. It's resisting, worshiping other gods in our land, giving in to sin, and it's taking possession of their land that God has given us to establish his presence there. Israel was to make the ground holy ground. Christians are supposed to make ground holy ground. But the ground are people. And some of us, if we're honest, we're so afraid or so offended at people that the last thing we think about is the fact that they've been taken captive to do the devil's will. And those people will go to hell. We're so offended and so afraid that whenever this comes up, it's like, ah, we shrink back on this one. But the Lord said, I've not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So if you are afraid, whose spirit is that? Don't make excuses. Don't, don't, don't think about anybody else right now. Don't think about who else. Don't think about when you did it a couple years ago. Right now, whose spirit is the fear, if that's there? What spirit is that? What fruit of the spirit is that? You know, the devil can take us captive to do his will too by not doing what the will of God is. Fear. You know, it's funny in Hebrews 2. I, always, I never could understand why this was interesting. Hebrews 2, it says that Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing because I didn't give it to, to uh, them back there to put it up. But he says this, that Jesus came and he came to destroy the power of the devil who he had over people who their whole lives had a fear of death. Right, look at Hebrews 2, uh, 14 through 16. Well, 14 through 18 is the whole idea. But 14 through 16 is him saying he's destroyed. This is why death, this is why death is so important. 1 Corinthians 15, death, where is your sting, right? Because no believer is supposed to be afraid to die because as Paul said in Philippians 1, to die is gain. But when we look at the land, we don't want the persecution. 
Why does God say, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted? Why is persecution connected to godliness? That's a crazy thought. If I want to be godly, I got to be persecuted? Because it's through persecution and you persevere through it that you realize, oh, greater is he in me that is in the world. But when I'm too afraid to go through something, I don't know if I can do it. But when I go through it and get through it, and even though it may hurt a little bit, I'm still here. So he says, if you want to be godly, you got to be persecuted. Why? Because Jesus was persecuted. The people who believed in Jesus were persecuted. And be clear, they were not persecuted just because they were living godly lives. They were persecuted because they told other people, you need to live a godly life. You need to believe in the God that I serve. Most people will not persecute you for living as a Christian. Especially if you don't say anything. You know why? Because apart from that, you know different than a Muslim. Jehovah's Witness, a Buddhist, anybody. The fruits of the Spirit aren't exclusive to Christians. There's a lot of people. I know not, all of us know unbelievers who are nice people. They're like, man, he'd make a good Christian. You ever been, you ever been put to shame by a non-Christian in the way they act? You're like, dang, they gollier than me. The fruits of the Spirit aren't exclusive to Christians. What's exclusive is that we desire to bear those fruits because we want to honor the Lord. As your pastor, I need to ask you for forgiveness. As of July 1st, I've been here 15 years, and I have essentially avoided the reality of making sure our church is going forward with spiritual warfare in this way. I ask you for forgiveness. I do not have not honored the Lord in that. Like you, I've looked at Mike, good job, I'm excited, man, what are we doing, what's going on? And even sometimes when possible, I've just been like, man, I'll catch him next time. I don't want the persecution that comes from it. Now, over time, the Lord has been changing me. I don't show up in here and say everything I'm doing because for what? The Lord sees. But I now believe more than ever that this is not an optional. This is a part of what it means to do spiritual warfare. It is not just resisting the devil. Jesus didn't come just so we could resist the devil. He said, go into all the world. Don't just agree with the fruits of the spirit. What about that command? When do we say, you know what? Let's do that. And if we're honest, just say, I don't know how to do that. Let's just be honest and say, you know what? I'm just not good at it. I'm afraid of it. I don't know how to do it. I would prefer not to do it. Well, let's examine why. Because to do it is actually doing spiritual warfare in us. Because we got to fight our own demons. 
to tell someone that they need to believe in Jesus. We are called to take possession of the land. And people who are the land have been possessed, taken captive by the devil to do his will. This is why it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There's another passage that says, he who wins souls is wise. Jude says, snatch them out of the fire. And if we're honest, many of us are just watching them burn. And we got justifications for why we're okay with it. I'm guilty as charged. But it will not be for me anymore. And I will not, as a pastor here, stand idly by and let our church just let it be optional for them. It is not on Mike's shoulders to be missional. It's on every single one of us. That's part of spiritual warfare. You can't accept this part and not this part. And I've, I've done that. So please forgive me for that. This is serious to God. So much so that in Luke 15, this is what it says. Beginning in verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And here's the most important. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous people who do not need repentance. There is more joy over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need it. This is not evangelism. It's spiritual warfare. We must take possession of the land, giving them a new knowledge of good and evil offering them the tree of everlasting life. We must be the serpent to Satan and tempt people to disobey him as their God. It is a part of the reason we are here. In the next coming weeks, we're going to drill down and talk more about this. But for now, process. Process. Don't think about what you're not good at or how hard it is. Just process before the Lord. All right, Lord, what's really going on here? Why am I afraid of persecution? If that's you. If that's not you, then don't, am I not talking to you? Please don't come to me and say, that's not you, that's not you. <laughs> I know it's been me, and I'm one of the boldest people out. It's easy to just be like, man, I'm, I don't feel like doing that. Now, I'm not saying if someone doesn't get saved, it's our fault. But I'm saying, though, 
Faithfulness does not ignore what Paul listed as spiritual warfare. He put that right in the passage. We can't just put on the helmet of salvation, the blessed plate of righteousness, the belt of truth, and ignore the feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Because if you do that, guess what? You don't got a full uniform, a full armor of God you're not wearing. That's why we need to see this as serious. That's why people are important. Why God said, all right, I'm going to give you all the world, but I'm going to start with this little group of people, this one dude, and they're going to grow into all these people. And then we're going to move right into the land. And I'm coming back for all the people I gave you. And God waited 700 years before he got started. Before Israel was a people, from Genesis 11 to Exodus 15, it was 700 plus years in human history. God gave the enemy a 700-year head start. And Christianity has turned the world upside down because of a small, insignificant-sized group of people who believed. You and I are a small, insignificant-sized group of people who say we believe. May this aspect of spiritual warfare be seen and experienced by us. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for these themes that come out of your word after Babel. We thank you for these seven themes from rebellion to redemption that we see throughout your word. And Lord, I know that this particular thing, people, and we are now your people. We are God's people. We are the holy ground. We are to take possession of the land. We are to fight against letting, because in, 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 in Israel, they could worship other gods in their land. And you warned against that significantly. So in the New Testament, we, not, we don't call them gods per se, but we know we don't want to give in to the sinful disposition that does, it is not of you. Because if it's not of you, then it's of Satan. So we are also fighting not to, let, not to let the enemy, the other gods of this world, Satan of this world, to, to infiltrate our land. We are holy ground by your design. And so, Father, as we've talked about spiritual warfare in this series and we, can, and we keep going over the next two months, Father, I pray that we would not ignore this. For you put it in your word, which we'll see in July, that this is part of the full armor of you. Let us not be grateful for Drew and what he's doing and Natalie and what she's doing and Darren and the people that won you. Let us not be grateful for just what Mike is doing. And the, and the, and, and all. Let us also be encouraged and spurred on. Father, may we not be like the Israelites arguing with Joshua and Caleb about how afraid we are to take possession of the land. May we be like the disciples who in Acts 4, 12, in Acts 4 counted it worthy to be beaten for Jesus, for you. I'm not asking that any of us be beaten physically or emotionally, but I'm asking that we would, in the pursuit of godliness, receive our just persecution. Not because you're angry at us, but because the enemy is. May it be so for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.
You got any questions, Brady? Yeah, we've got a couple here. Um, so the this question is, uh, what is the why is the Earth referred to as a footstool? You know, what what's the what's the significance there of that that reference? It's an imagery. It's just imagery. I mean, God, the Bible. You know, probably more than half of the Bible is just imagery, right? God giving humanity images to show His authority, his sovereignty over the world, his control. And those images are important for us because we don't see that, right? Like prime example, in John 12, we know this because we've saw this a couple times in the last few weeks, where Jesus says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out, right? And when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So Jesus says the ruler, Satan, is about to be cast out when he's crucified. How many of you think that happened? When I look at the world, I think it's just gotten worse, right? You don't think that way because you don't see it. So sometimes when God gives us this imagery, like heaven is, the earth is my foot, the earth is, in, is insanely big to us. It's intimidating, but the God that we serve says, man, that's under my feet. At my old church that I first got saved and we used to sing this song, when things are over our head, they're under his feet. And we all we would sing the whole song, under his feet, under his feet. We say that Jones so long my feet hurt. But it was a good, <laughs> but it was, it was making a point. It was, look, when things are over our heads, so it's imagery to help us know the God that we serve is in control, even though it doesn't always look like it to us. So that's what that kind of imagery is for. God isn't saying, oh, the earth means nothing to me. He wouldn't have sent Jesus into it if it didn't mean anything to him. He's just describing this, this world has no authority for me. Now, in the context, he was going after people saying, I want to make a house for the Lord, like he's impressed with the house. That's what he said. What house would you build for me? Heaven is my throne. The earth, where you're, the house that you want to build is underneath me. It's beneath me in that sense. So, good question. When God divided up the, the people, um, did he put false gods for them to worship? I mean, yeah, so false gods, sure. False gods in comparison to him as God, right? But God doesn't have a problem saying that they're God. Psalm 82, but you are gods, all of you, right? Sons of the Most High. So God gave, and Psalm 82, when you read it, God is basically correcting these other cosmic powers of darkness for leading the people astray. So their false God, I mean, God obviously knew that they were going to do it. But God still expected them to be obedient, but they weren't. And so he chastises them in Psalm 82 and then says, I'm going to reclaim the nations. And then we see that happening. You know what's interesting? And I'm not going to get into this now, but in uh, Revelation, notice how it says to the angel of the church in Smyrna or Ephesus. Or we look over that like, oh, he's just talking about. But no, he's not. That's intentional language to the angel of the church in we're not going to get into that right now. Y'all don't want that smoke today. It's Mother's Day. Y'all want to go home and eat lunch and, and, and hang out with your mom. Um, we've got a couple around um, the topic of evangelism here, and um, there seems to be a couple people who are looking for ways that they can um, grow in that. Like, how can we as a church grow in that and, and some things like that? So... Um, I know you have some thoughts on that and you've got some plans for that. So 
Uh, all that's coming next Sunday. Mike's not here today. I want Mike to be here. I want Mike to be here for that. But all that's coming next Sunday. That's part of it. That's part of what we're talking about next Sunday. Not all of what we're talking about. But part of it, yes. So I'm just, today I just wanted to put it out there. But if you, if you, Lord willing, if I'm here and we're all here, then we're going to talk about some of that next Sunday in, 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 in detail for our church. We're not talking about ideas. We're talking about for our church. I don't care about the big, I'm talking about for our church. When I stand before God, I'm not giving an account for American evangelicalism. I'm giving an account for solid rock, but for our church. Just know, though, this is something that I'm repenting of and, um, and going to challenge us to do the same. And then uh, the last one we have here is um, how, do we, how do we change our way of thinking uh, in that mental battle to um, not be afraid of what others have done, you know, American conservatism or stereotypes that come with Christians and things like that when we're evangelizing or when we're talking to people about Jesus, how do we um, get ourselves over that mental hurdle of the burdens of others that we have to account for? Yeah. So it's funny that that's a great question that really connects back to the first question about earth is my footstool. It's those kinds of statements. It's statements like all authority in heaven has been given to me. It's statements like we do not wrestle with flesh and blood and here, put on the full armor of God. It's all of those kinds of statements. What it really boils down to is do you believe those are true? Right? Because let's be honest, we're selective in our so in God's sovereignty, right? We're selective in what we apply in the Bible and what we believe. So many of us who are Christians here believe that when you die, you're going to go to heaven based on what Jesus did, even though you're consistently sinful at times. Right? Many of us believe that. But then we struggle to believe that we had that Jesus has authority over the world and that we can, and we struggle to believe that persecution is actually for our benefit at times. So a lot of it is more so like the Bible is replete with imagery and statements that say who we are, right? Who we are to God and what God will do. And just like Israel, Israel was afraid too. And so, but I tell you what though, and I mean, for anyone who've experienced this, you know this. Whenever you sit down and have a conversation with people and then they end up coming to faith, there is something different about that moment. I'm not talking about, it's good when you're discipling someone who's already a believer. But when you're talking to someone and then they make the connection from you sharing and they come to faith, there is a joy that makes that verse about heaven rejoices seem real to me. It's like, wow, you're excited. You're ready to do it again. But you know what stops us? The possibility of rejection. So I think a lot of, and we're going to talk about this in more detail, but I think a lot of it is just like, what? Why do we trust these verses, but then not these verses? Like, I mean, we could, and part of it is we just don't, none of us want to be rejected or suffer or be seen as, and I, I personally believe, I cannot prove this, I personally believe that in America, the growing animosity towards Christianity is so that Christians in America, for some, for the first time in their lives, 
experience the persecution, it helps them be godly. I don't think the Lord is scaling back nothing. I think it's only going to get increasingly worse for the church. Now, if you're post-mill, I'm sorry. I'm not post-mill. And even if you are, that might be a ways before the, the, the world changes. Right now, though, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I think because the church in America, America is a Christian nation in comparison to other nations. But when you think about are we a Christian nation in comparison to obedience in the Bible, that's a different question. You, you cannot say we're a Christian nation, right? But we've paraded that. And in the guise, in the, in the year of our Lord, right, we've done things and been okay with things that vehemently disagree with what he's taught in the Bible. I know people who are choosing sinful lifestyles because the hypocrisy of the church. Because they're intelligent enough to read, you're supposed to be like this, and they see people doing the opposite, and they think, I'm not going to, I mean, why do that? Why do that? So I'm not saying that's you, per se, but that's, that's the country we live in, right? So I think the, I just read a poll the other day that less than 60% of Americans identify with Christianity, the, hot, the lowest ever in the history of our country, or at least since they started doing these polls in the 50s. Less than 60%, and they said it's going down rapidly. I think that's for a reason. I don't think God's like, oh, no. I think he's like, yeah, let's let, let's let, let for the first time, for some of us, our Christianity is going to cost something. In other countries, their Christianity costs. You don't believe me? Ask, ask Carla. Go ask Carla right there. She will tell you about what Christians go through in China. Take a few minutes and ask her what it's like in China. And you'll see, man, somebody... I remember reading this story. I don't know if you said it or Carl said it. I remember reading stories about pastors going to church with a suitcase because they knew that at any moment the authorities were coming in and arresting them for preaching the gospel, and they had a suitcase with them. I read a story of a woman in China who was put in prison for nothing and started a prison ministry, had 40 women saved, and only had a portion of a song. I've heard stories of God revealing himself in dreams in Islamic countries, and all of a sudden, massive people are getting saved. And we're over here afraid of people rejecting us. So I just think, I think we have to think about, okay, I believe I'm, I'm going to heaven. I believe this. Why do I struggle with this? And just be honest with the Lord about it. It's not like the Lord doesn't know. I've grown in my prayer life and just being more honest with the Lord. I think the Psalms are some of the most, the ones that are, they're struggling. I think those are some of the most real literature you can read. Angry at God. I love that John the Baptist said, go ask the Lord if he's a Messiah or not. Because God wasn't offended at that. He understood. He understood what that feels like. Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the disciples abandoned Jesus. And we're worried about how we've been betrayed. Everybody abandoned him. Only John was there with his mom, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, mother of James and Joseph. Everybody else was gone. He felt like the father abandoned him. He wasn't just quoting Psalm 22. He was feeling that in that moment. But we're offended because people have betrayed us. All these things that we, so I just think a lot of what we need to do is really just say, okay, when it comes to this area, 
There's an aversion to this. And what is that? What is that? Why am I, I want it to happen, but why don't I want to be a part of it? What am I really afraid of? And then say, Lord, remove, you didn't give me a spirit of fear. The only way, I, I personally believe this, the only way that you really believe the scriptures is when you actually obey them. And then you go through stuff and you come out on the other side. I mean, there are tons of people in this church who I remember, I remember going with Mike, Mike Perry, to his brother's funeral. And we were sitting there at his brother's funeral. And I went with him just to be there for him and support him. And I watched his mom, Mary, who's in the back. And I watched her get up, and her son had passed away. And she said, I will not be defeated. I will not be defeated. And she was crying out. Her son passed away. And she said, I'm still trusting the Lord. I will not be defeated. I never forget that. Never forgot that scene. That to me was like, that's the faithfulness that I want. Mary, thank you. Happy Mother's Day to you. I never forgot that scene. And me and Mike sometimes still joke, I will not be defeated. We still say it to each other. Where is that? How do you get that is you go through things and you still believe. You don't get that when you don't go through anything because then you don't know if you're going to believe or not. But it's Mother's Day. Y'all tired of that. Let me go ahead. And... Let me go ahead. I'm over here. We will touch on this some next week. I want Mike here. It's important for Mike to be here for that because Mike has borne the burden of that for our church, but he, shouldn't, he can't bear it anymore. It's not his burden alone. It's all of ours. Now, there will be different dynamics, and some people can do more than others. We get that. Some of us are in situations where the most you can do is pray for it for other people. I get that. But let's at least include that. But there are many of us who are not in that situation. You're not those among the first gen who have a little bit more challenges in being at reaching out to people. Many of us are with people all the time. Some of our best friends don't believe. And some of them people don't even know we believe. May it not be so. Because of this. Because of this. You know, this is what we call communion. And this is something that God instructs only believers to do. And the reason why is because we are God's people. He has taken possession of us. We're his holy ground. And we do this in memory of that. So if you're not a Christian here, we're not trying to embarrass you or shame you, but this is only for those who do believe in Jesus. It was what he said. And then Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we really got to, it has to be for people who, who believe. So if that's not you, that's okay. I'd, I'll be here for a little bit. I'd love to talk with you with the other people, but this part of the service is only for those who are holy ground, who the Lord has taken possession of. And this is why we are, this is why we do the same. We want others to join us in this. We want other people to also be able to participate in this and remember what Jesus did by dying for us on the cross. This is spiritual warfare. What he did was spiritual warfare. What we're doing is the reminder of our responsibility 
We're not just thanking him for what he did, but we're reminding ourselves that we are to be in spiritual warfare in the same. He took possession of us. We want to help him take possession of others. So, Lord, we, we dedicate this moment. We dedicate all things to you. But in this moment in particular, may this memory connect to, may it connect to all that we've heard today. In just 10 minutes, we summarize a lot of what we've heard in this series. And it points to our two responsibilities is to resist worshiping gods in our land and to take possession of the land for your glory. So, Lord, may we remember you dying on the cross. You initiated this. You fulfilled this. And you've asked us to carry this on. So we do this in memory of you and a reminder to imitate you for your glory and our good. Let's eat this together. And we take this and we drink this in the same vein to remember what God has done for us. Manny, do this again for me. Man, I don't know what's happening right now. Y'all can drink. The, the enemy doesn't want me to participate. Thank you, bro. And in case anyone's wondering, we will be talking about demon possession in July. What does that mean? What does that look like? And how we should process it. We're going to get into it. We're going to get into it. Having said that, it's Mother's Day. Be with your mom today, if you can. Tell your mom you love her today, if you can. And if not, then remember something good about your mom today. All right? Enjoy yourselves. Uh, don't forget, next Saturday is the, um, the church sponsor date night. I do need some people to help, five or six, so please get to me so that we can serve the... Uh, the people who don't always get a chance to go out and enjoy each other, please do that. And with the rest of that, thank you for coming. Enjoy this beautiful day. Love your mom, and we'll see you next time we see you.